All right, church, you ready to dig in? Yeah. Good, I hope so. Because today, today is the climax of our six-week mini-series uh, that we're going we're gonna to wrap it up today. Because six weeks ago, Jesus and the disciples walked out of the Temple Mount. And as they left the Temple Mount, the disciples turned around and pointed at it and said, Look at how beautiful it is. And Jesus turned to them and said, let me talk to you about its destruction. And so Jesus and the disciples proceed to the Mount of Olives. They sit down and sort of do a little Bible study. And Jesus begins to teach them about the end times. And so the last several weeks, we've talked about things like the church age. We've talked about the rapture. We've talked about the tribulation the judgments, the bowl judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments. We've talked about the difference between the tribulation and the great tribulation. We've talked about the return of our king and more. And Jesus' point through all of this, the reason he's taught any of this and all of this, is because, he says, we need to be ready. We need to be ready. And just so we didn't miss that, Jesus taught seven parables. He taught seven parables. A parable about a thief. A parable about a wise and an unwise servant. He told a parable about a fig tree. Taught a parable about ten bridesmaids. And even a parable about several talents or, or bags of gold. All with the point of making sure they are and we are ready. That's his point. And some of these teachings have been encouraging. Some of these teachings have been uplifting. But I would say, at least for me, most have been very, very convicting. Would you agree? Yes, they've been hard to hear. Because th uh, this morning, we're going to see the, the climax of this entire section as Jesus talks about what is going to happen when he returns. When he returns, Jesus says, I'm going to settle accounts. He's going to judge and it's going to be hard to hear. So if you've got your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Josh, you're in the back. Matthew chapter 25. A uh, young believer uh, came to Christ just a few weeks ago, rang the bell at Northside Christian School this week. Uh, anytime someone comes to Christ at Northside, they ring a bell so everyone on campus can hear. And you get your very first Bible. He's in the back this morning with his very first Bible. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. And, and so as you turn to Matthew 25, let me ask you a question. Um, when you were young, did any of you do anything really, really dumb? Okay, so I'm assuming that uh, we're all in agreement that we've all been there. But let me ask in a different way. Did you do anything really, really dumb and thought you got away with it? Because in that moment, you thought, I am, you were so sure that no one would ever know. You thought you got off scot-free, but then the knock at the door came. Or the phone call rang. Or if you're like my family, the police showed up at the door. <laughs> and that's another story. And, and even... Even now, when I start asking that question, your heart starts to race a little bit. You start to sweat a little bit because you remember that. Because in the moment, see, you thought it was funny. 
In the moment you thought whatever you did, it's no big deal. And then all of a sudden, the knock at the door, the neighbor shows up, the, the teacher or the principal calls, or the, or the police are there, and judgment now is coming your way, and that judgment is very, very real. And in a similar way, this text we're going to look at is that one is coming. And when he returns, he is not bringing a cross. He's coming to judge. He's coming to settle accounts. So take a look at at verse 31 with me. This is what Jesus says. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So far, love it. You know, because if you remember, if you take a look at the chart that I gave you at the beginning of this mini-series, and it laid out sort of the end times, what you're going to see is this is after the seven-year tribulation period, after all of the seal judgments, the bold judgments, and the trumpet judgments. We have now reached the end of the tribulation period, and Jesus is coming now to set up his throne in this thousand-year millennial kingdom. And his reign here on earth is about to begin, and look at what happens. That's verse 32. Jesus says then, all the nations, so that's everyone left at, at the end, Jew, Gentile, everyone, will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, says, and he's going to put the goats on his left. And now remember, Jesus has already said in Matthew 24, at this point, because again, I need you to remember the context of all of this end times teaching. Jesus has already said that everyone that's left on earth now, everyone has heard the gospel. Everyone has heard the message of salvation. It has reached all the nations at this point. And so Jesus now begins to speak of things like sheep and goats that the people of Jesus' day, they would have been very, very familiar with this imagery. See, back in the first century, sheep and goats were not very easy to visually distinguish. What we think is fluffy, white, cute, bah, you know, right? We think of that. And on the verse is brown and black, short-haired goats with horns. Like, it's not quite like that. That's not the way it was visually. They were more familiar looking than you might think. But, and it's a big one, the shepherd knew the differences. The layperson looked over there and couldn't necessarily quickly distinguish, but the shepherd could. There is more than perhaps the eye can see. And Jesus, the great shepherd, says, I'm going to separate these two groups of animals. And if you think about it, calling believers sheep is not new in our Bible. It's not the most flattering thing we could be called, but it's better than some things I've been called in my life. And so it's clear that the sheep are the believers, and it's not new to call Jesus the shepherd. I'm the sheep, he's the shepherd. In fact, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. So it's very familiar. He is the shepherd, and we are the believers, we're the sheep. But then that means the goats are unbelievers. That's the word picture for them. And Jesus says the sheep are going to end up on his right and the goats on his left. And in the Jewish culture, on the right, that's a place of honor. Over here on the right, that's a place of significance. On the right is a place of, these are my special possessions. 
And to be clear on a bigger picture level, this is not the final judgment for all believers, traditionally called the great white throne. That comes at the end of the thousand year reign or at the end of the millennium. This speaks to something else. So let's keep going with the passage and see if we can understand what it's saying. Verse 34 says, Then the king, the king will say to those on his right, you sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. You realize this is the only place in the end times teaching where Jesus identifies himself as the king. And he's telling the children of God, these sons and daughters, this king has awaited you. But I want you to notice something here. Did you realize the sheep didn't get judgment? They got grace. Look at verse 37. Watch the shock. There's a shock here as to why they are admitted to the kingdom. It says, then the righteous, or the sheep, will answer him, Lord, um, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And like, when did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or, or, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and, and go visit you? And if you think about this for a second, many of you have been taught this passage out of context. This is an end times teaching section. Most of the time when this is taught, it's not taught in, in the middle of that framework. So I need you to think about all that you've learned, all that you've read, where we are in this journey through the end times, because the sheep are asking a very, very obvious question. They're saying, Jesus, it's the tribulation period, and your saints have been raptured, right? Like, you're in heaven with the believers that have been raptured, right? Jesus, what are you talking about? The people that are talking about here, have come to faith during this seven-year tribulation period on earth. So these relatively new believers are saying, Jesus, you're not here. How could we have done any of these things to you if you're not even here? Like, you're not physically present. Well, in verse 40, Jesus explains what he means by this. Jesus says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What Jesus is saying here is, it's not that you did it directly to me. It's what you did for one of these so-called brothers and sisters of mine. It's how you ultimately did these things to me. And lots of commentators have debated through the years... Um, who these brothers and sisters are, and I would say the safest interpretation would be for us, would be not only the 12 disciples, but anybody else joining the disciples as proclaimers of the gospel of the kingdom of God, who have come to faith during this tribulation period and are heralding the gospel to those around them. They're caring for the people around them. That's what they're doing. And these sheep were treating people during this time incredibly different than everybody else. And they were doing it like Jesus would do it. And how you treat them is a mirror image of how you treat Jesus. Now the question we have to ask then becomes, how do you know that the people Jesus are talking about are, are, are truly saved believers? 
Well, the answer according to Jesus, and this is the shocking part, is not just by their faith, but by their works. And some of you are like, ooh, Kevin, you're walking on thin ice, right? Because he's showing that they have truly been transformed and that their belief had led to action of some sort. Because when you read it, you realize there's, Jesus says nothing there about faith. There's nothing of belief that comes from the mouth of Jesus. There's nothing about repentance. There's nothing about sin or any of those things. It's simply about the works that these people did. And so the obvious question then becomes, um, is Jesus now like teaching a different gospel? Is he teaching about something uh, being saved apart from faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone? And we go, no, that can't be. What Jesus is saying in this moment is that a believer should have life change, and that life change should always evident itself over time. If you've had life change, then that life change should evident itself over time. That true faith in Christ will always, true faith in Christ will always, given enough time, it will show itself up in the deeds of our life. You can't hide it. How, how can you hide it? And if I were to say to you this morning the name Lance Armstrong, some of you know who that is. World famous cyclist, seven time Tour de France cycling champion, had them all stripped away for cheating. And if I were to say to some of you the name Greg Lamont, you would also know cycling champion, Tour de France winner. But I think less of you would know who he is. But if I were to mention a guy by the name of Gino Bartoli, I would imagine the vast majority of you have no idea who he is, but you should. Gino Bartoli was a professional Italian cyclist. In fact, he won the Tour de France the year before the Nazis occupied Italy on the heels of World War II. And during this occupation, Gino watched with horror as Jewish believers were persecuted at the hands of the Nazis. Millions upon millions of Jews were dying at the hands of the Nazi regime, and Gino was watching this all go on. And what's odd is, in the 1940s, only about 6 to maybe 7% of Europeans actively supported the Nazi regime. If you think about that, only 6 to 7% of the Europeans, they actively supported the Nazi regime. But the problem was, less than 1% of the people that were in Europe actively supported the Jews. Which meant that more than 95% of people out there did absolutely nothing to help the Jews in their plight. Now, they felt bad. They didn't line themselves up with the belief systems of the Nazis. They didn't agree with the Nazis. They felt terrible, but they did nothing because the vast majority of people in Europe in that day simply asked the question, what will happen to me if I help and interfere in their lives. That's the question Europeans were asking. What will happen to me if I help or, or interfere in their lives? And so they didn't step in. But Gino Bartley asked a very different question. He asked, what will happen to them if I do not? That's a very different question. What will happen to them if I do not? And what Gino realized is he had a very unique place as a champion cyclist in this country. 
He traveled all over on his rides. He was very well known at border crossings because when you're training for the tour, you, you, you've got to ride long distances as you train. Everybody knew who he was, and so Gino was presented with an opportunity to take forged documents and pictures for Jews across the Italian border to give them a new identity so that they could find refuge, so that they could find a safe haven. And so what he did was he took the forged documents and pictures and rolled them up and jammed them in the tube of his seat. And he took those same documents and he put them in the down tube of his bicycle and he would transfer them across the border unbeknownst to the guards. The guards would say, oh, there's Gino. Here he comes. Let him through. So Gino used the gifts that he'd been given, maybe his talents. We call it his fame, his privilege, whatever you want to call it. He used it to save countless Jewish lives. And today there's a plaque memorializing his deeds in the Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Israel. His beliefs ultimately led to action. And that's what Jesus is talking about right here. I referenced James chapter 2 last week, that faith without works is what? Yeah, how did somehow we all memorize that verse without ever trying to memorize that verse? No one says, that's my life verse, right? I don't know anybody who says that, but we all know that faith without works is dead. It's useless. James and Jesus are saying the same thing. How does one know that you believe the message of the kingdom? The answer, according to Jesus, is that it shows up in your life. It shows up in your life, that you help those in need. Jesus was asked the question, what is the most important commandment? Do you remember that way, way back when we covered that? Hey, what's the most important commandment? And his answer was twofold. Love God, love your neighbor. I think most people know that. In fact, the evidence that you truly love God will show itself in your love of neighbor. Again, just to be clear, it's always faith that saves. It's always faith and faith alone that saves. But faith that's not accompanied by works, that's a dead faith. And as Jesus is walking these tribulation saints through why they are entered into the kingdom, it's because ultimately their faith has been put on display. It's not a, a useless faith because it's accompanied always by works. And friends, as we talk about this today, it exposes the difference between ideological social justice and gospel-centered social justice. And there's a difference. We live in a day where uh, we talk about feeding the hungry, demonstrating hospitality, all the social needs that are very much in front of us. In fact, you hear about social justice almost every single day in our city. You hear about it almost every single day on the news. We hear about things like abortion, oppression, racism, you name it, and we see it as well. And what Jesus is saying is, those that have put faith in me, those that truly believe, it should move them to action in these areas, putting me front and center in each of these areas. The difference is, gospel-centered social justice puts Christ as the solution to all things. So sure, do we engage, do we help, do we fight, do we speak up, do we take action, do we demonstrate? Yes, 
But we do this so that whatever is given to them by the Lord to live and act like Christ in these areas. It's to put him on display. He's our solution. They do it so a dying and hurting world sees the transformational love and they see the transformational power of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying is, for true believers, their works will give credence to their faith. But it should always lead to me. But the next question then becomes, how do we know the sheep from the goats? Like, how, how do we know that the goats are, are different? How, how, how do they evidence unbelief? Well, the answer is the same way. That's verse 41. Jesus is going to speak to the goats. Jesus says, then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Yeah, things got really intense really fast. It, it's like all of a sudden, that's very intense here. No, that's nobody's life verse that I know. Uh, verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and eating clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You need to notice it's the same story again. And instead of their faith evidencing their belief because they did something about it, their works are not there. They call him Lord. Do you see that there? They call him Lord, but they don't know him. They've not been transformed because their behavior did not follow their belief. Two similar groups, two very, very different outcomes. And while Jesus has referenced eternal punishment, or, or what we call hell, several times throughout this series, actually he's referenced it at least six times since we've been in this series, I really do think it's time to talk a little more in depth about this, that Jesus gives us four very specific things about this subject right here. First, Jesus, according to Jesus, he says that hell is something that is very, very real and very, very true. You can disagree. I don't think he cares because it's true and it's real. And I think sometimes people try to avoid this idea of hell by saying, oh, hell, that's like Old Testament God. Like that's when he was cranky and when he was in a bad mood. But now, you know, he softened, you know, like New Testament God, he has evolved. And now he's meek and he's mild Jesus and he's all about love and compassion and the idea of hell, that's just vanished because you know what? He's a better person today. And the problem with that is we are allowing our emotions to drive our view of hell. Because I don't know of anybody that's like, hell, yay! Woo! I don't see anybody doing that really because we don't like it. And though we don't necessarily like the concept of hell, our, emo our emotions can't dictate whether it's true or not or it's a reality or not. In fact, as you look through your Bible, do you realize that Jesus speaks about hell more than any other person in your entire Bible? Je like the Jesus, by the way, speaks about hell more than anybody in your entire Bible. He speaks about it being 
a very real place, and he speaks about heaven being a real place. Lots of people don't tend to go, well, I don't know about heaven. Is that real? I mean, sure, outside the church, but inside the church, I hear people all the time go, I don't know if heaven, I don't know if hell is real. Jesus says it is. And when he talks about it, he uses incredibly graphic language to describe it. He describes a place. He tells us who and who will not be there. He tells us all sorts of things about it. Why? Because hell is true, and it's a very real place. Second, Jesus sees hell as not only real and true, but Jesus sees hell as eternal. Like, there is no work release program in hell. It's not. There's no purgatory. There's no second chance of repentance. Nowhere in your Bible do you see someone given the opportunity after death for someone to come to their senses and repent and go like, oh, Jesus is the way. My bad. We don't see that at all. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9 says, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. It's not a chance for a second chance. But Jesus speaks to the eternality of hell in Mark chapter 9, where he says, but if your eye, you've heard this before, but if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus talks about the eternality of hell, and he doubles down on what Isaiah says in Isaiah 66. And not only does he affirm what's said in the Old Testament, he doubles down and expands its intensity and the longevity of it. Third, Jesus says that hell is a place of punishment. The Bible depicts hell with images that produce shock and fear. It has the idea of darkness attached to it, of fire, of great suffering. Over and over again, Jesus has defined hell as a place of weeping, uncontrollable crying and emotional distress and suffering, and as the gnashing of teeth. And what was really funny this week well, it's funny now. It wasn't funny then. I wasn't sure how to communicate to you what gnashing of teeth is. And then last night, I come up on Saturday nights, and I, I, I pray for you here. But as I got out of my car, I slammed my thumb in the door of my, just my thumb in the door of the car, and there was gnashing of teeth. <laughs> if you hit your thumb with a hammer or smash your thumb in the door, in that moment you clench your teeth, and you squeeze your eyes closed, and you grind your teeth together going, and you do that, yeah, it's that forever. That's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the other picture that he talks about here is, is fire. Jesus says, the son of man will send forth his angels, he will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. Hell is a place of physical pain forever. Hell is a place of emotional pain forever. Hell is a place of intellectual pain forever. Hell is a place of relational pain forever, where you'll be separated, you'll know other people are there, you might even sort of recognize the voices, but you can't get to them and you can't say anything to them. 
It is spiritual separation. It is spiritual hell forever where you will know what you've done. It is real, it is eternal, and it is punishment. And lastly, Jesus describes hell as a place of banishment for unbelievers. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? They're going to say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name? They're going to say, Lord, Lord, did I not do mighty works or miracles in your name? And then Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. One of the worst things about hell is the fact that God allows us to take our own course and he will banish us to our own chosen eternal destiny. And we have two options ultimately in this life that we either live with God or we live without God. And if you say, I don't want to live underneath God's authority, I would rather live for myself. In a sense, that's exactly what author C.S. Lewis wrote about in his book, The Great Divorce. He put it this way. In the long run, the answer to all of those who object to the doctrine of hell is in itself an answer to their statement, God, leave me alone. Alas, I'm afraid, that is what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Church, Jesus speaks of hell. It's literal, it's eternal, it's terrifyingly miserable and painful, and it will be populated with unbelievers. And though I don't like to talk about this any more than you like to listen, no one's jumping up and down today about this. This is from the mouth of our Savior. But the question we have to ask is why? This sounds so messed up. It sounds really mean. It, it's, is it really necessary? And the reality is the why is twofold. First, it has to do with God's holiness. And I'll do my best to paint the picture this way. If you think about the sun, like the object at the center of our solar system, everything revolves around the sun. It's literally our life source. Without it, we all would die. Plants wouldn't grow. The earth as we know it would not be here. But yet, there's a reason why the sun is 93 million miles away from the earth. There's a reason for that. It's a hot, burning ball of gas. And any closer would be a real problem for us. It's terrifying in that regard. And though it's a great thing in that it gives us life and it gives us warmth in every regard, if we are any closer to it, we would be instantly consumed. And the same is true for God's holiness, which is the opposite, in a sense, of our, of our sin. Isaiah the prophet, when confronted by God and realized he was in the presence of holiness, he said, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I'm hanging out, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. This is at God's nature, this is who he is, he is holy. 
In fact, God says this about himself in Exodus 34, when Moses kind of hides his face and, and God reveals himself, he, he shows himself, God says, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is indeed gracious, and he is loving beyond all that we can ask or imagine. But the other side of the coin is also true. You don't get compassion and grace without justice, without sin being dealt with. And God, in his character, and because of his holiness, has to deal with sin. And this... That's really kind of the second part of why hell must be this way. You know why it must be that way? Because of our sin. That's why it's got to be this way. Sin at its core, it's not just breaking God's rules. Sin is slavery. That's what sin is. It's making things that are lesser than God the ultimate thing. And as we pursue those things, we pursue these lesser things seeking to find happiness and joy and purpose and freedom. And we're looking to do it outside of God. And we do it in things like money or, or sex or fame or power, or whatever. And as we put these above God, and we find out in the end that they're all empty and they don't lead to any of the things that we'd hope for. We'd hope these things would provide it all. And because we've hoped for that, all along, we've been bowing down to an idol. We don't want to call it an idol because it's not fun to call it that. Idols don't heal. They never will. You can bow as low as you want to bow. Idols don't heal. Idols don't satisfy. You can pursue, put them up as high as you want to. Whatever you want to do, they will never satisfy. Idols cannot bring love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. If you're looking for any of that, you will never find it at an idol. You will only find it in the Holy Spirit. All, you, you know what idols bring? Death. You know what idols bring? Emptiness. It's a mirage. They're all just a big mirage. And the Bible shows us that no matter, no matter how hard I try, I cannot unhitch my wagon from this belief system. And the truth is, I'm not going to stop pursuing it on my own. What we need is someone to let us free. We need someone to set us free because sin is literally slavery. That's the essence of the gospel at its core, that God gave everything. You, you, do you realize it took heaven's best to overcome your sin? It took heaven's absolute best to pay for my sin. That Christ was put to death on a cross for you and I to pay the penalty that sin demanded, which was death. And church, that's why hell is that way, because our sin is so great and his holiness is so other. That's why hell's the way it is. And so some of you are like, Kevin, this morning was miserable. <laughs> like, what am I, am I possibly supposed to leave here with? You know what you should be experiencing right now if you're a believer? Incredible gratitude. If you're a believer in this room, what you should be experiencing right now is incredible gratitude. Why? Because hell is a reality you will never face. That's why you should be grateful. 
You will never face the judgment of God because it was dealt with for you on that cross. And instead, we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not facing judgment, but rewards given to us based on our faithfulness in this new life, based on how we stewarded the resources of God, the precious talents, the gospel that he's given to us. The second thing this morning that I think you should be experiencing is you can stand in confidence that God one day will make all things right. If you had a terrible week, God is going to make all things right. Not some things, not most things, and not many things. He will make all things right, that it will not be like this forever. That God will come and deal with it all. That you have not been abandoned. That God is not aware of what's going on in your life. Either what's been self-imposed by you. What someone else has done to hurt you. He knows your station of life. And he cares and he grieves over the things and the wounds that are happening against you. That you will be healed one day. That's the confidence we stand in. Because one day all things will be made right. Including me. And finally, this teaching in this section by Jesus, he's intending to stoke your evangelistic fire. That's, I don't know if you've ever, I'll use guys for a second, I know girls do some too, but at least all the guys I'm around light a fire and they all want to grab a stick and poke at it. <laughs> Non-stop. That's called stoking the fire. Because trying to get it to burn hotter. We're trying to see those cool sparks come up, right? That's what's happening. For a lot of us, our evangelistic fire is nothing but embers anymore. And somebody with a stick needs to come by and poke at it. It's not the job of your pastor. It's the message of Jesus Christ. We need to know that the game we're playing here is for keeps. The game you're playing is for keeps. We're not messing around with the message that we've been given to proclaim the message of the gospel and it has eternal consequences for good and for bad. And if you're in this room or, or you're watching online and you're in here going, you know what, Kev, I kind of identify with the goats a whole lot more. I am begging you, grab me after the service because I could stand up here and play some soft music and talk at you until you raise your hand, but I want you to wrestle with Christ. And if you need someone to help you understand the person and work, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are not going to walk these aisles, fine. I guarantee you someone in the seat next to you will be happy to walk that through with you. Because if not, shame on us. So if you've got questions and you don't want to come forward, ask somebody, talk to anyone. They would love to share with you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that, my friends, changes everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes your yesterdays, amen? And it changes your todays, amen? And Jesus just said that it changes your forevermore. Church, that's the return, I think, you never knew.